Welcome back to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. My name is Amy Beth Horman, and I'm going to reintroduce myself to enter into season two over here because it has been a little while since our last episode. I am a violinist, teacher, studio mom, and in my first full year as a professor of violin at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music Pre-College. My daughter Ava is also a violinist, and she gave me the proud title of studio mom when she joined the pre-college at age seven. Ava's nine now and in year three over there, and I am along for the ride. I started this podcast to reach out to parents, having watched a myriad of parents over the years, and now I'm encountering some of the same difficult terrain myself. I have a pretty unique perspective, having run a competitive private studio for many years, and I have the high hopes that I can help educate and empathize with parents who are working their hardest for their musical kids to reach their dreams. It is my belief that there is not enough parent education available sometimes at the pre-college level, and it can be very stressful on families and students to navigate this leg of the journey in particular. My goal is to increase dialogue in all musical circles and to add to conversations so that we can deepen our understanding of what helps young artists develop beautifully and thrive. I wrote this podcast and all of its episodes to empower parents to understand how much of a difference they can make in the trajectory of their children's musical futures. So let's get started. Today we start season two of Beyond the Triangle, and this episode on Halloween weekend will focus entirely on stage fright. This is a huge topic that was requested of me and one which is talked about a lot, but I hope to add some new ideas and plant some seeds today. It's also a topic, like many of them, that is near and dear to my heart for many reasons. So I am going to start with an anecdotal story from my youth. I'm starting here because I think this was truly my first experience with the effects of stage fright and how it can really trouble a young artist's development. When I was at conservatory, I was surrounded by talent much like Ava is at SFCM. It was exhilarating and very special, and it undoubtedly influenced a lot of who I am as a musician today. One thing I noticed as a young person was how some students seemed fully centered and confident on stage, while others struggled with nerves. We all became friends, and most of us did a good job of trying to support one another, especially if there was a big performance and the stakes were high. While I was there, I had a boyfriend for a few years who had a very hard time with stage fright, and we spoke a lot about it. He was on beta blockers for the entire time I knew him, and this was a topic we struggled over. He was working hard to get his first prize degree and felt he needed them, but then was being told in his comments by teachers that he seemed detached on stage and was not giving enough emotion to his performances. We tried to work through other techniques to help him stay level and centered, but in the end, His fear got the better of him, and he just wasn't willing to try to perform without the medical intervention. The pressure was on him, and he felt he didn't have time to explore the other options. So often I think this is the case, that things aren't explored fully, and the pressure sets in. 
The thing that broke my heart about it for him was that he was so talented and wanted to share his music and his hard work, but stage was a nightmare for him. To get your degree in Paris, you had to perform for it. You could try three times to present your program for your first prize degree, and if you didn't get it on the third time, you were done. No degree. I don't think he ever got past it. Stage fright can be a performer's prison, and it cheats all of us, not only the performer, who's left devastated and unfulfilled after hours of sacrifice, but also the audience, because they're left having not heard the performance that was prepared for them, possibly a groundbreaking one, and one that could mean so much to them. In truth, many performers and musicians use beta blockers, so this alone is not a problem. It blocks the adrenaline from affecting their body, and I am not strictly against them, but the ones who I know who use them do it in combination with other tools so that they don't have to rely on it as heavily. There are side effects, too, which aren't that desirable for a happy life sometimes, and they can leave you in a fog, which doesn't exactly fuel a memorable performance. Sometimes if other options aren't combined or explored, I've known very gifted musicians to go from beta blockers, unfortunately, to other substances to relax or calm them, which can lead to benzo abuse, prescription abuse, alcohol addiction, you name it. This can ruin their lives and the lives of everyone who loves them. So we need to be watchful and empathetic as teachers, parents, and fellow students We need to explore ways to help ease stage fright while preserving health and well-being. We need to do it early, and we need to use a lot of patience. Sometimes I wish I still knew this young man from Paris, but we lost touch as many couples do after breakups. I've learned so much since my conservatory days, and a part of me wishes to still help him. I've thought about his situation and the angst he felt and the consequences he faced many times over as I meet new students or parents who describe to me their struggles with stage fright and ask for my help. So first up today, we are going to talk about different ways I see stage fright presenting itself to me as a performer, teacher, and mom. I'm going to use all three perspectives in hopes it reaches some people and shed some new light on an important topic for all of us. For me personally as a performer, in times in my life when things were in turmoil, I had more trouble readying myself emotionally for stage. Turmoil for an artist can mean change, good or bad. I can remember performing the Dvorak Concerto just weeks after delivering my second daughter Freya. And I was so sleep-deprived, it made me doubt everything I was doing. I was also just still plain old adjusting to having two little children needing me and getting my feet back on the ground. Everything felt shaky. I threw all caution to the wind that day and had a beautiful performance, but vowed to be kinder to myself in the future in my own scheduling. I could feel the nerves. They were so elevated. When I came backstage directly after the performance, Freya was screaming with my husband, holding her tight. She had a bottle, but she still wanted me. I felt a rush of guilt and relief. The stagehand asked, whose baby is this? Incredulously. And when I said sheepishly that she was mine in my concert gown, she responded with, no, really, whose baby is it? 
And I found myself just sighing. I hadn't known I was going to be fortunate enough to have another child when I signed that solo contract. But still, the timing landed not very much in my favor or in Freya's. This was a joyous time, but one of massive adjustment for my family. And it made me very nervous that day, both backstage and on stage. I also remember a time closer to my 20s when my relationship with one of my private teachers was very tenuous, and I felt he had somehow lost faith in me. I was really struggling finding my own voice suddenly. A performance around that time also had me riddled with fear, and it just didn't go my way that day. I just couldn't find emotional center. Both of these were situational bouts of stage fright, And having never had it to that extent before, I wasn't sure how to deal with it. And I didn't see it necessarily coming, so I couldn't change some of what I was doing to prepare for it. What do I see as a teacher? Well, as a teacher, I have in the past received transfer students that were carrying a large stigma of having issues with stage fright, and they were very affected by it. Their parents felt it too, and it was almost palpable, like a fog over them as they walked into the studio. They were being given the message by former teachers or even judges that they were talented enough, they worked hard enough, but they just weren't able to deliver it under pressure. They thought they would never make it. These things can be very damaging to children as they are developing their talents, And generally, there has to be a break from competitions and high-stress performances so we can back up a bit and figure out how to help them. In these cases, it's sometimes a chicken-or-the-egg scenario. It's hard to track where things started with stage fright, but they need reworking. Some of it is how they perceive themselves, and some of it is rewiring their goals on stage, figuring out how to find their love for the instrument again. I will encourage more mock performances and opportunities in smaller venues for students like these and on pieces that are not quite as challenging to allow them to rediscover their love of sharing music. Sometimes they have a very deep love of performing, but it just needs to be unearthed while we work out some technical issues and lessons. Other times it's more complicated and involves some mindset resets and a lot of parent education about expectations. As a studio parent, I see Ava nervous backstage now more often, and I'm so proud watching her try and channel that energy somewhere beautiful. Having said that, I think as children grow, they go through hormonal stages which spark or affect levels of stage fright that, if unaddressed, can spiral and go hand-in-hand with self-doubt. Some kids are fearless at 8, but a bundle of nerves backstage at 12. Ava encounters situational stage fright on stages where she last had a problem or on a piece that has a spot that has failed her before. She has learned to openly discuss this with me, and that does seem to help. Because we face these things head on, I feel we have sponsored a sort of fascination with how to get past it or how to conquer that spot or reclaim that stage. We know that it might not be perfect in the first tryout, after a problem, but we're interested to see where it will lead us. I try hard to reframe it all as positively as I can using growth mindset, and she always has multiple performances to try things out. 
Of course I'm nervous for her, but I try to only show nerves in the positive sense. This is how I do it. I might say something like, I'm so excited to hear you play today. I can hardly wait to see what happens. Or adrenaline just means something amazing might happen, so nerves can be good. Or it will be so interesting to see what your body can accomplish today with everything you've been learning lately. Sometimes I will mention a spot that I know she can nail really easily, and I'll say, you know what I'm really looking forward to hearing on that big stage is that phrase after rehearsal letter A. That's one of your favorites, right? I bet it will allow all of your sound in that big hall. To give her something positive to focus on can be so important. Something happy and empowering to look forward to can make the difference. She's definitely more prone to stage fright now than she was at six, but I know that that's normal. Even at six, while fearless, we gave her a real-life soother, which was my father, playing piano with her. He even held her hand walking out on the stage. The gesture she made to him at the end to thank him as her pianist will go down in our family as one of our proudest moments. The pieces are harder now, though, and she cares more. She's sacrificing more, so that makes sense. She's having to make real-life choices about playdates versus practice. She's growing up and seeing more subtleties in everything. This is something that is important in her artistic development, so I'm trying hard to support it and be empathetic to her feelings along the way. Maybe this is something that some other parents of tween children can relate to, but there was a time where I would say to Ava, did you notice that you played that note a little bit off? And she would say, no, I didn't hear anything. But now I think things are fine and I'll ask her why she's making that look at me and she'll say, it just wasn't quite right. She cares more and that's good. We want that as teachers and we definitely want it from the audience perspective. I want her to be able to do exactly what she feels on stage. But this also can be the cause for a little bit more nerves too. We want them to be picky, but not so perfectionistic that they get completely paralyzed backstage. The thing is, is that as a parent, I think you'll notice this shift in mentality in your child first. So it's our job to help them find that happy medium. Now seems a good time to break in and mention that if you or your child suffer from an anxiety disorder in general, which then manifests into stage fright, you definitely want to find a really well-versed doctor for anxiety to discuss what is best for you. You can still use everything in this podcast, but a doctor's visit will be a must, in my opinion. They may be able to help you with specific cognitive behavioral methods that can help break the cycle of performance anxiety or fear. There may be a medication that they can prescribe to help you, or they may try some of the methods we talk about today first. You might even end up with a combination, but by going to that appointment, you're taking an important step. And for some musicians, this step alone calms them because they're being proactive and facing something. So let's move on to some solutions, some soothers, some antidotes for stage fright. Here are my top five from all of my perspectives. Preparation, purpose, performing, planning, and parenting. Let's start with preparation. 
Preparation seems obvious enough, but it is a multi-layered topic. Ever been backstage with the thought that you wished you had another day to practice? If you have a kid who is an avid performer, you have undoubtedly heard them say this once or twice. The thing is, if they feel this and they believe it, that is at the root of most nerves they have on stage. As we are preparing for a performance, we need to be mindful of the work we are putting in and how we are preparing our bodies for the eventual sensory overload, which is stage. For instance, is your child practicing too fast? Are they teaching their body to panic and second guess in fast passage work? This is poor preparation, which can lead straight to fear. If they train slower, prioritizing centered, calm reading of notes and execution of technique, they would eventually become more mindful of any panic their body felt, choosing to slow down instead. This would then train their body to only play their piece in a centered, calm state. This takes discipline and patience from all fronts, student, parent, and teacher. If we want to teach a child to be confident on stage, we must instill the need to feel confident and centered in practice. In practice is where we train the body to do what we expect on stage. Our hope is always that it will assume its trained state, even under pressure. This is no small feat, so correct preparation through practice is paramount. And mindful practice is key so that a child can train to be more aware of every aspect of their technique while they play. Awareness is everything, but you'll have to go slow to find it. I have seen many students over the years train in a mistake or a workaround where they make a mistake and then correct it and then move on again. This becomes ingrained in their playing and it's very hard to remove we need to work slowly enough to form the right connections with our bodies so that we can count on them later and so that we'll have the confidence to count on them later. If I can get anything across in this podcast, it is the need for calm, centered, mindful preparation. Assuming you have a reputable teacher, this includes following their every instruction, Presumably, they have built this monument of a piece before, and they know exactly how to go about it. Looking for shortcuts or workarounds threatens your success, and it can frustrate your teacher to the point where you find yourself seriously off track, delaying deadlines and forcing you to reset goals. Trusting your teacher in how to practice is essential to being confident on stage. Does this first antidote I've offered sound easy? I'm here for straight talk, so I have to say, if you think this sounds easy, you're already off track. It is harder than everyone thinks it is. Lately, in lessons over here, I've been asking my younger students to identify a challenge as either a lion or a lamb. Often, I think they are bewildered as to why they can't play something cleanly, and it's because they've defined it as a lamb. They're approaching it incorrectly. I'm quick to correct them that therein lies the problem. If you approach a lion like a lamb, you will lose every time. If you approach a lamb like a lion, you'll just be overprepared, which is fine, of course. Preparing correctly for a performance is a lion-like task. It will require your full strategic focus and determination. You will need to practice when you don't feel like it. 
go over something slowly when you would really rather hear it fast. Do exercises on it that make you sound awful before they make you sound good. You will need to breathe in and breathe out gritty work, but the rewards are worth it. As a soloist who was on a short list for emergency replacements, I've been asked to learn concert works in less than a week and fly somewhere and play them. This is no small feat, but what it did teach me was the absolute power of proper preparation. Because the only way to learn one of these pieces in less than a week and then perform it well is to never misstep, to never go too fast, to only train the body calm and centered, and to be mindful in a way which mirrors meditation. I'm so glad I have been given these short deadline opportunities so that I've come to realize how powerful the mind and the body can be when we discipline ourselves to practice beautifully. And in some cases, it took every ounce of discipline I had. It isn't easy, but it has allowed me the opportunity to be with my children more, enjoy life. It's decreased my practice hours to something which is tenable. And yes, very efficient. On to my next antidote. Now let's talk about purpose. If you have something very important that you need to communicate that feels like it is very powerful and relevant, almost to the point of you needing to share it or else, this can essentially eclipse a large portion of stage fright. I'm talking about musical purpose, storytelling, vivid feelings, or large-scale emotions that you can't wait to share with people. How do we teach children to connect with this and prioritize it over being perfect? The irony is, if we accomplish that, they will make less mistakes because their bodies will stay in expressive mode, where fear doesn't breed as easily or at all. It is important that we as teachers assign pieces where children can prioritize the story, the emotion, the character, and the overall message of the piece without overwhelming fear of technical collapse. That means not pushing them through repertoire too difficult and instead choosing to abide by the slow and steady wins the race philosophy. This is important for kids, teachers, and parents. So often I've had parents push me as a teacher to choose harder literature, which I know will collapse that balance. Some have even switched out of my studio to find a teacher who will allow it. They want prizes, higher seats in orchestra, and maybe they will get just that. But they might also get a side order of anxiety and stage fright. It isn't worth this risk. There is time to go over the repertoire properly and build their confidence on stage beautifully. But let's hop back to purpose and how to find it. How do we get a child to connect to the story in their piece? For the younger ones, I have them write a story that aligns with their music. For some, I've had them make a full-on art project. I don't want to know that the king is wearing a suit in their story. I want to know that he's wearing a suit and what fabric is it, the exact color, how heavy it hangs, and how he walks with it on. Instilling vivid imagery and a specific character in their minds inspires them to want to convey it to their audience. Maybe this sounds only geared to little kids, but it really isn't. 
Recently, I had a student recording the first movement of the Tchaikovsky Concerto. In her lesson before recording day, she asked me how she could get into the right mindset to record. I smiled, so grateful for that question, and I asked her whether she knew how valuable her concept of love was at her age and how we all needed to be reminded of it. That she's lighthearted and poetic and that she dances around love and that a lot of her audience will revel in this remembering their youth and reflecting on it for days after they hear her. It was time for her to find the purpose in her playing and to seek refuge in that. With so many notes in front of her, it was time to trust her hard work and just follow her ear and her heart, committing to her unique musical message. She then went home and to my delight, she wrote a poem about it. And the next day, she thrilled me with gorgeous, open, generous playing. She surrendered her fear to her purpose. My next antidote for stage fright is definitely to perform. This might seem overly simple again, but it is the single most helpful thing I have done in my studio past preparation to combat stage fright, and it absolutely works. In order to acclimate the body to the rigors of stage, you need to simply get on stage more. After you have done the same piece several times in front of an audience, it loosens and allows more spontaneity, which in turn gives the performer more pleasure. This is so helpful to get students wanting to hop out on stage again. If you are a parent looking for performances, think nursing homes, libraries, local schools, places of worship, maybe just your own living room. If your child says they are thinking of sharing their music with a group of people, cheer them on. Help them make programs, print out the music, and make a binder. Make lemon squares for a casual reception and get concert ready for a beautiful experience. Anyone can create a concert at home. And this used to be very common and in vogue to have house concerts. I still love them, and I think they allow for such a great connection between performers and the audience. For harder, more virtuosic pieces, repeat performances are not just helpful, they are necessary. Adrenaline changes how your body responds to things, so the harder the piece, the more chances to perform it you will need before the student feels they are able to freely express themselves and get the feel-good response they deserve. That feel-good response thing is what makes them want to practice and perform again. So think. If you only plan on one concert for something really difficult and all they feel is fear while they play at 70% capacity and then you rush them into new pieces, it's really not humane to a young artist for the time that they have put in. And it's definitely not ideal for long-term motivation. You have to be willing to complete a cycle of concerts so that they learn that there is a rainbow at the end of this process where they actually get to share exactly what they have planned musically and aren't interrupted or rerouted in a burst of adrenaline instead. I've had so many performances in my third or fourth try on something super difficult where I almost said what I wanted... And actually, people loved it and told me so backstage, but in my head, I was thinking, wow, if you liked that, you should hear what I actually plan to do for you today. And then I scheduled another performance to give it another go. 
Huge violin stars who perform every weekend with orchestra play new works with smaller orchestras first so that they don't have reviews or pressures attached so that they can get their body used to it and build toward their A-list performance where they undoubtedly will have press and important people likely in attendance. The more hard rep students master on stage by way of multiple performances, the easier it gets, too, because they all contain similar techniques which respond in familiar ways to the body on stage. Many times I feel parents are waiting for something to be perfect before putting it on stage, when really for it to become quote-unquote perfect, which I don't even really believe in, by the way, but more on that later, it needs to be performed multiple times. Waiting too long also builds expectations and anxieties. For a kid with stage fright, this isn't ideal. And then on harder pieces, I think it's patently unfair to them. Some progress for young artists only happens on stage in front of people, so they need to be kind of thrown out there so it can start cooking. Mistakes are inevitable and should be accepted and noted, but not overly dwelled upon. The important thing is getting into the habit of walking out on stage, bowing to the applause, and sharing from their heart. As a teacher, I make a huge deal about a first performance of something, no matter how it goes, because I tell my students, hey, we're off and running now, and it's only a matter of time before they feel everything they've worked for. Let's go. Okay, let's get to planning. Planning is a very essential thing for battling stage fright. I list this third because without the first two, you have less to plan for, right? So what do we have to plan for since we are already practicing, attending lessons, forming a greater musical purpose, and looking forward to performance day? Well, for one... Two weeks before any performance, I start battening down the hatches of the rest of my life. I pay bills, I clean house, I meal plan, I get everything out of my way. I see the luthier to check bridge, sound post, strings, bow. I get my concert clothes ready. I set them out with shoes and accessories. I plan the actual day of the concert out very carefully. Child care if needed for our siblings, how we will eat our meals. I map out locations, parking, warm-up time the works. I also plan out a few trial performances through rep classes, retirement homes, churches, or family and friends like I mentioned before. I even plan extra rehearsals or two with the pianist before their schedule locks up. And I insist on full run-throughs every day in the week to 10 days prior. To do that, the rest of your life needs to be fluid enough to have space for these things. I don't plan concerts around family, weddings, or celebrations because practice time is too limited in there unless we are performing as part of the festivities. I don't plan concerts around testing periods at school because it is entirely too stressful for everyone. I've had students show up for recordings and performances straight out of hardcore testing. They were a wreck. I've had kids choose to compete on weekends right after final exams, and then they get sick for weeks afterwards from the stress of it. Here's some real talk again. How we plan for them right now serves as a model for them to plan for themselves. Striving for success through exhaustion is not conducive to a quality of life. 
We know this as adults, but sometimes we slip and we still push. We have to be better than that as studio parents. If you have multiple extracurricular activities going on, it's time to look at that very carefully or at least see if you can taper them off on important performance weeks. This would be true for all young artists, but especially for ones dealing with stage fright. Sometimes we do need to push through things, yes, but those instances are ones which pop up out of nowhere, and kids will naturally hustle through those nine times out of ten. And hey, look, opportunities do sometimes appear with no planning, and you can try out that hustle gene right then and there and see how it pans out. A kid with a good hustle on them who is scrappy and can pull out a concerto on short notice can be a fabulous working musician in the future. But in general, setting your kids up for success means planning around a performance and ensuring that there is enough emotional and scheduling fluidity in your lives to give you a solid chance for a good outcome. We have to be reasonable with how we plan out their experiences on stage because a poor experience can seed very deeply and an amazing experience can do wonders to empower a child. Young artists need glorious time on stage to fuel their next leg of work and to motivate them to continue sacrificing free time for rehearsal and practice. That empowering performance is worth fighting for, planning for, carving out extra energy and scheduling for every time. And remember, a kid who is battling stage fright at any level needs the positive experiences so much more than anyone. Okay, last but definitely not least on my list of antidotes for stage fright. That's right, parenting. You knew this was coming, right? And you've seen trickles of it before. Parents are key to combating stage fright. The students rely on you for the planning and for permission to care about purpose over perfection. Purpose over perfection is a wild choice for some parents, and I know it's a hot-button subject. Perhaps this is for an episode later, but they will take their cues from you. If you expect perfection on their first time on anything on stage, your expectations need to be put in check if you ask me. It really is that simple. Pieces need development on stage so that their body can acclimate, and too much pressure from a parent can trigger stage fright like nothing else. Parents also need to be listening, possibly from another room, and aware if a kid is going too quickly through their piece and not being mindful in practice. They are doing more damage than good, and with stage fright looming, intervening gently and reminding them to retrain their bodies for stage is necessary. Kids need help making new practice habits, and even if they switch flawlessly to mindful, slower practice, I advise parents to be more present in weeks leading up to performances. Not to nitpick, but to encourage them to stay on the right path. I love it when a parent asks me what they can do to help more as a performance approaches. As a performance nears, a child can feel understandably more anxious, and they want to just run things faster, or they might start deviating from the practice that their teacher has assigned. They may start looking up other methods on YouTube or changing their interpretation to suit a technical problem. These are fear-based decisions. They need help seeing things through correctly and staying on course. 
For us, the week before performance, I cook better food and I a lot of her favorites. I bring healthy snacks into practice. I sit with her while she does the exercises that are the most difficult but ensure her success. I make sure she gets enough sleep and I bulk up her nutrition a bit to help her with focus and energy. I listen to her run-throughs and I help her notice the improvements she's making. I stay positive. I'm just more present in general and I try and listen more. The truth is when you have a child who's dreaming of being a performer and struggling with stage fright, even the situational kind, the game changes. They need the positive stage experience so much more to bolster them toward their next goal. With anxieties backstage in high gear, they need to be reminded of the story they want to tell. They need to be redirected to why people are going to concerts, which is to feel something. In many great performances, the audiences won't remember all of the notes you played, but they will remember exactly how you made them feel, like a physical snapshot that they revisit later for years to come. I heard Gidon Kramer play the entire unaccompanied box sonatas and partidas in New York City years ago, and I remember nothing about his interpretation, which was very specific and beautiful, but I remember everything about what I felt. I wish I could hear him do it all again because I want to feel that again. Placing emphasis on this can be life-changing for some students. A child who knows in their heart that you are interested in what they have to say musically, as opposed to hearing all the right notes, is more eager to hone their practice, look forward to a performance, and they're happier on stage. Disposition fights stage fright. As a parent, you have their ears, even when you think you don't. In fact, backstage, you might be the one person they are still listening to besides the voices in their head and negative talk in their heads is real. You can be there to help them battle it. Keep it light, focused, and positive. And yes, I know how hard that is, but I still think I need to tell you. Let's talk for a bit about the stigma of stage fright and how I think we can all help remove that stigma and talk more openly. My belief is we all have stage fright to some degree or another. Sometimes it pops up more than others, and for most, it is situational. For others, it is constant and can be very debilitating, but we can all come to the table with some story about how we were genuinely frightened waiting backstage and talked ourselves off a cliff. I think also that if we talk more with parents about how to recognize it and see it earlier, we can work more with kids on being proactive to help it. It isn't a shameful thing at all, because some of the best musicians I know have struggled with this, and in large part because they cared so much about their music and their message that they were trying to convey to the audience. It comes, in my opinion, from a place of virtue to care so much, and the kids I have known in my studio who have trouble with stage fright were by far some of the most talented kids I have ever come across. And yet people don't talk about this enough. Performers hide their struggles. Kids don't come to us with their fears because they're not sure how it will be received. They just need to understand their bodies more and have hope that they could work through some of this because lots of people do. Some kids also are just naturally more perfectionistic about everything. Ava was that kid that would stay at the art table in Montessori for hours, and at one point, The teacher mentioned to me that although the other kids had free reign over their stations, as they called it, 
Ava stayed longer at the stations than most and seemed to be fretting about stuff. I remember thinking, "Uh uh-oh, that sounds like me as a kid. If this is also your kid, they will be more prone to some level of stage fright because they want so badly for something to come out in a very specific way. So in those cases, I recommend parents follow my antidotes full throttle from the beginning because their kid already has a profile that I recognize as someone who could have some nerves backstage at some point. And hey, the antidotes won't hurt. They're just soothing agents, really, so there's no harm in implementing them. Sure, you might notice other families seemingly flying around carefree with nothing looking planned at all or in order, and their kid somehow plays great. But that might not be your kid right now, and that's okay. I've never met a musician anywhere who didn't have stage fear at some point. Some students just need parents and teachers who are on the lookout and can help them navigate very predictable situational stage fright. Because for situational stage fright, I believe we can see it coming somewhat. Triggers for situational stage fright could be, and are not limited to, sleep deprivation, playing in a new location with new people, performing a piece which has had trouble before, or a big change in life circumstance at home or in a core relationship. Young artists are incredibly sensitive, so even if they've had a rift with their best friend at school that week, it could rattle their emotions and affect their balance on stage. So stay tuned in. As parents, we can see some of these triggers coming from a fair distance, and we can start to work some soothing agents into place to help them cope. Sometimes I don't even think it's necessary to mention it to them. Just slip some of these suggestions in, and it's bound to help. This might mean ensuring a good night's sleep or providing better nutrition, sitting with them in practice, or creating a pre-concert routine that helps their body ready itself for focus. I used to have trouble with travel, so my family flew with me whenever they could to compete. They also gave me extra cash to buy calming tea or to take a taxi rather than public transport. I know families that go to yoga together and practice meditation and visualization together. When I was a young girl, my mom made the exact same meal for me before every performance, and I loved it. We would always play Scrabble, which was my favorite game, and guess what? I only lost to her on those days, which we always laughed over. My mind was racing about the music I was about to play, but somehow that meal and a good game of Scrabble with some giggling got me in the right place for success. It was a ritual I will never forget, and I hope I am half as smart as she was. In her own way, she was trying to help me. I had some students over the years that would play brilliantly in familiar halls and spaces, but in new locations, even in town, they would have a little trouble. Too many new elements could throw them off. It seemed almost like sensory overload to them. So I had students start taking pictures of the stages, the curtains, the backstage waiting areas, the practice rooms, the outside of the building, the changing area, you name it. We then had students give short first-hand accounts of the building and how it felt on stage, including their thoughts on the projection and what they would try differently if they had a chance. This way, when a kid made the final round the following year, they would get a packet of info from me to give them a sneak preview of what they would see and feel. They used this to visualize and think through strategies before they got there. So what I'm really saying is, get creative in your parenting and teaching. 
offer soothers right from the start. Kids change fast and life is always happening at a high pace, so we need to pay attention and implement simple ways to help them do their best all the time. No stigmas, just soothing strategies being put gently in place to support as needed. I think we need to talk more openly about stage fright with students and parents so that everyone understands that it is normal and very common. And since some will have no stage fright at one developmental stage and then a handful at another or in a certain situation, talking openly helps us educate and have strategies on hand for all of the students. Opening dialogues in studios and at home invites students to share with us if they are having anxiety about things coming up so that we can all be a team. Ironically, just sharing what they're feeling can actually ease stage fright right off the bat. Keeping it inside has exactly the opposite effect. As we close out our episode today, I want to talk briefly about meditation, centering, and visualization. These tools are well-documented, and there are scads of articles and videos to instruct you, but I am here today to tell you that they work. Learning how to meditate and breathe properly to calm the body, rid yourself of external stressors, and focus the mind is an essential part of being a musician. Centering on stage before you begin is equally important and can have a huge effect on the outcome of a performance. I teach all of my students to take their time tuning, setting up, balancing the feet, finding center of gravity, and finding a focal point before starting. Projecting large-scale emotions into a hall isn't something that just pours out of us naturally. It needs to be readied and prepared for launch, so to speak. We need to be in the right state. Mental practice and visualization are also very helpful to many of my students, I've had countless times where visualizing every aspect of how my body will feel starting a concerto or even walking out on stage and starting a concerto has had a huge impact on the outcome of a concert. Many times a technical passage I'm struggling with will not budge in progress until I engage in mental practice and work it out without the distractions of the instrument on my shoulder. If I fully immerse myself in the process of playing it with my eyes closed, I'm able to find workarounds and identify tensions that I never do with the violin on my shoulder while playing. I often tell my students, if you cannot close your eyes and fully imagine yourself playing a passage without tension perfectly, you will not achieve it with instrument in hand. We are able to perceive tensions and connect with our body differently if the instrument is down. We are naturally less distracted physically, and there's a depth of focus there that can yield lots of solutions to technical and musical challenges we face as performers. I hope you enjoyed this episode on stage fright. I know that performance anxiety comes in many shapes and forms, and my hope is that by sharing my many perspectives, I've given you new things to consider in your young artist's journey. You probably heard remnants of some of my former episodes in here. Practice power, nutrition, mindset, the well-tempered parent. If something I said today triggered a previous episode for you, go back and revisit it. Most of my episodes are geared toward helping our children perform with more confidence and with consistency. I believe in approaching the whole child in music education. 
By educating and sharing stories from all my perspectives, I hope it opens up conversations and helps parents tailor their unique child's musical journey. If we as parents, teachers, and young artists work together, I believe it can change the course of who we hear on big stages later. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. We are back for season two. I'm back to email too this week. So if you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect. Let's connect.